Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, a conversation with Mickey Brammer. Her new novel, The Collected Regrets of Clover, is a big-hearted and life-affirming novel that turns the normally taboo subject of death into a reason to celebrate life. It's a sparkling debut, which reminds us all to live our best life with fewer regrets. Brammer was interviewed by Readings Marketing Manager, Rosalind McClintock. Here's Rosalind. First, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we work. We pay respects to all First Nations people of Australia and recognise their connection to the land. Sovereignty was never ceded. I'm Rosalind and I'm here with Mickey Brammer, author of the debut novel, The Collected Regrets of Clover, a wonderful novel about a quite lonely woman who works as a death jeweller, helping people peacefully through their end-of-life process. She diligently writes down their final words in one of three journals, regrets, advice and confessions. She then tries to honour that last breath by living out their advice wholeheartedly for a period of time. But Clover isn't really living her own life. This is a book about her slowly discovering how to live again. Hi, Mickey. How are you? Hi, Rosalind. Thanks for having me. <laughs> That's a really simplified summary of your novel. How would you describe it to people? Um, actually, I was just thinking you did an excellent job of <laughs> describing it and, and capturing it. That's basically what I would say in addition to the fact that through working with these people and considering their regrets, she comes to realise that she has many regrets of her own. And so I think it makes her wonder what it means to live a beautiful life and if it's still possible for her to maybe do that herself. She seems younger in the book than she actually is in a way. Is that, do you think, because she hasn't lived this big life? She's sort of been watching these movies and helping these people through and the people she hangs out with are such a massive gap in generational. It's Leo who's in his 80s or 90s, I can't remember exactly. 80s, yeah. Did you do that on purpose as a juxtaposition or? Yeah, I did because I think when someone, you know, the way we mature is through having challenges and a lot of that happens socially and for someone who's been a bit of a shut-in and hasn't had the chance to have relationships, be that friendships or romantic relationships, then she's a little bit emotionally immature. And even though she's really great with the dying people, that's in a different capacity because that's not really putting herself on the line or having to be emotionally vulnerable. It's where she actually finds her self-worth because she can be strong for these people. But because she hasn't had any of these other relationships, I think it makes her more emotionally immature than than her age would reflect. And then she's so mature in other ways as well, which is mm -hmm. interesting. One of the relationships that intrigued me, so to give some background to the listeners, if you've not read the book, is her parents die quite suddenly when she's young in a car accident. So she goes to live with her grandfather. And it's a really strange relationship and it's beautiful in many ways, but there's points where you're reading him interact with her and you can see that he's doing his best, but he's kind of stuffing her up in a number of ways. Can you talk me through that process of writing that really nuanced relationship in a way? Yeah, what I really wanted to show, and I wanted to do this with all of the adult figures in her life, even the teachers at the beginning, is that nobody really knows what they're doing. And I think as kids, we think our parents know everything. We think our teachers know everything. But really, especially in the 80s and 90s, teachers had no idea what they were doing Well, a lot of the time. And I think it's kind of the Wild West in that way. And I think there's even a point when you realize when you're older than your parents were when they had you, that really they had no idea what they were doing. And so 
I wanted to show that that even when people who love us and care for us have the best intentions, they are human and they're kind of stumbling through it the same way we would as parents now that we're adults. And I think that's a beautiful thing about life is that we're all just trying to work it out as we go along. We get that through the whole book with every character as well. I mean, I loved the character of Claudia. And I know you write for um, Architectural Digest and things like that. For me, her house in itself was a character. Yes. I mean, what a great part of my journalism job is that I get to see inside amazing houses. And in New York especially, there are just some magnificent ones that I've gotten to, to see inside. And so I really do think that people's homes are often a reflection of themselves. And I really try to do that with each of the characters in this book. So Clover's house reflects her emotional state. Her friend Sylvie's is very different to hers and I think is a reflection of her and same with with Claudia as well. And I think there's so much about architecture that can contribute to character. What I wanted to show there was in spite of its magnificence, you know, It doesn't always relate to happiness or reflect someone's happiness, even if they have what many might consider to be the most beautiful home in the world. If her actual life doesn't reflect that, then, you know, what's the good of it? Yeah, you have used space really well, even in the bookshops and Hugo's shack and things like that. Everything's really beautifully portrayed through the physical space because I guess she's quite stunted emotionally. It's another way of expressing what's going on and then Reuben and Julia's open window who are the people across the road from her who she's projecting this love affair on and I obviously I feel like that's got a bit of a 90s movies element which obviously you have a great love for reading this book and uh, so does Clover what would you say you have brought any of those tropes into the book yeah and I did that on purpose because you know this is a book that's about death and a lot of people die and the whole goal with the book was to make the topic of death palatable for people that might not normally read a book about death and so in doing so I really wanted to give things that were familiar to the reader to hold on to so that's why I said it in New York and specifically the West Village where pretty much everybody from any country would be familiar with the West Village because it's in in so many movies and TV shows And then, I mean, I could have had her obsessed with French cinema or, you know, obscure Russian films, but I don't think that would have been as accessible and that would have just been another unfamiliar thing for a lot of readers. But with those 90s rom-coms, you know, everybody, even if they don't like them, everybody's seen them or is familiar with them. And so when there are these moments that are quite emotionally fraught, then there's a little bit of relief for the reader with Clover, which is how she finds relief as well by just watching these and compulsively re-watching these kind of over-the-top trope-ridden movies. That's kind of the way she expresses emotions vicariously through those characters so she doesn't have to acknowledge her own. Do you think it sets her up for failure in a way, though? Yeah, absolutely, like it does for all of us. I mean, we're all raised on those (laughs) films and I think we've probably all learned that that's not the way life works out. And I think that's what she really needs to learn. And because those are her only reference points emotionally, that's why she stumbles when she does have the chance to experience relationships in different forms. Yeah, and her relationship with Sylvie is so interesting as well. She just doesn't even know how to interact in a simple neighbourly way. And it's not just with Sebastian and Hugo, it's, it's with female relationships too. It's like she can't relate to her generation of people. Yeah, and I think some people might wonder about that, like how can she be so personable and intuitive with her clients, these people who are dying, and yet so awkward in her social lives and when 
interacting with people in real life. But I think that happens to many people. You know, we have a professional face and yeah. then you have your personal face. And when coming from the personal perspective, that's a lot more vulnerable. You're not really wearing that mask, so to speak. And I think she kind of has the skills, this emotional skills in there somewhere, but she freezes up when it comes time to actually put them into action because these are really unfamiliar experiences. Whereas sitting with a dying person, she's done over and over and over. So she knows exactly what they need. She knows exactly what to do. But when it comes to making a new friend, she just has no idea. Yeah. It's an interesting book in that it is based in reality. I had never heard of death doulas before. So there are people out here did you go to death cafes to yeah I did that's how I found out it was like a really hot summer in New York and I went into the New York Public Library for the air conditioning and I um went downstairs where there's kind of a less glamorous normal lending library not the actual grand New York Public Library that that everybody knows and I found a flyer saying death cafe and I was like what is this and I kind of read through it and I thought oh well because I'd been researching the topic of death and I was like oh well I may as well try it and then went to one and it was such an interesting experience and then I discovered that it's a worldwide phenomenon and has been going on for quite a while and you know there's death cafes I think in in most cities and there's online death cafes so it is an actual network of things and I think and that was before the pandemic that I went to that one but I think probably now there's a much greater need for them because everybody has such a keen awareness of death whereas we were a little bit more able to ignore it prior to this yeah and did you write this novel through the pandemic yeah like I'd had the idea before the pandemic and then I joined a writing group where you kind of had to submit something every few weeks and I didn't have anything to submit, but I really wanted to stay in the group. So I was like, oh, I probably should work on that idea I had. And so I'd I'd started and I'd written a few chapters and then lockdown hit and I was in New York and, you know, it was really hard to get back to Australia and I, I didn't have an urgent need to when a lot of people did. So I just stayed here in New York, but a lot of people I knew here had left as well. So I kind of had a lot of time to myself. So I sat down and wrote, which I think a lot of people with books coming out now did exactly the same thing. And do you think that, you know, that isolation you had through the pandemic writing this sort of helped you get into the mindset of Clover who lives quite that isolated life as well? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I enjoy alone time, but not in the same way as her, you know, like bouts of alone time and then like being social again. What was interesting was it was right in the time when New York was the epicenter of everybody dying there. I think hundreds of people dying per day. And so there were literally just ambulances going past my window all day and all night and I can see people being stretched into ambulances in the neighborhood and and things like that and then you know I'd ride a bike through the city because it was empty and you'd ride past the hospitals and there'd be the morgue trucks and you'd see them putting bodies in there so it was very inescapable what was going on and I think writing a book about death with that around me I thought it might actually be difficult and make me not want to do it but it really just made me think that how important it is to bear witness to these things because this is happening in real time to these people and their families and it it made me realise how many of those people likely died alone, how much loneliness was probably being augmented throughout the city because so many people were trapped in their homes by themselves because we're on lockdown and I think 
everything resonated all the more while I was writing it. So it was really interesting to be writing during that time. It's interesting though, because I mean, the novel isn't just about death. This is obviously sad points, but the novel itself is not a sad novel. The crux is she's starting to live again, right? Yeah, it was actually interesting when I started writing it, especially because it was before the pandemic, you know, and people were like, oh, what are you writing about? And I'm like, oh, I'm writing a book about death, but it's like joyful and happy. And people would just be like, I don't get it. They they couldn't really understand how something could be about death and be happy. But that was really what I was trying to do was to take all these things that I'd learned about what death doulas do and just about mortality and grief and, and things like that in general and, and present them in a way that was joyful and uplifting and, and funny at times so that it wasn't so confronting because I'd always had anxieties around death, which is why I kind of had this idea in the first place. And one of the reasons I never would really read books about it was because it is, you know, they're often so melancholy and depressing. And so I really wanted to to make something that explored all of those things, but in a way that, as I said, was more palatable. Do you still have anxiety around death? No, I don't. This is like the goal with the book was to explore where that came from and then maybe overcome it. And And, and through writing it, I really did make peace with it just by exploring the roots of it. And I think part of it comes from the fact that in Western society, you know, we don't talk about it a lot. That's really quite silly because we all have it in common and it's all going to happen to us. So I think once I kind of thought about why I had the fear around it, it really helped extinguish it. And and going to the death cafes, you know, sitting in a room just with everybody talking about death really casually. <laughs> Such an interesting experience, especially New Yorkers, because everyone's so opinionated. I think talking about it, and that's what I hope the book does, is just makes it a more open conversation for people in general. Because I think if we can have the conversations, especially with our loved ones, before the time comes, it's never going to be easy in that moment. But perhaps it could be a little easier when you know people's last wishes, or you've said the things you wanted to say to them, or you know what their regrets or confessions might be I think the more we can all talk about it I think the healthier we can be and it, I love those three things you sort of distilled your final words into those three you've got regrets you've got confessions good advice like there's three things in life that people go out on in a way I don't think like as I say in the book you know it doesn't always happen as neatly as that and often people's last words are just nonsensical or random things that wouldn't fit into those categories but as a general rule, when I was researching people's last words, it did really seem like those were the categories that the last words tended to fit into. And often with the regrets, you know, they were really simple things. They weren't grand dreams like becoming movie stars or anything like that. It was just like, I wish I'd used the fancy dish detergent or, you know, I wish I'd said I love you to more people or I wish I'd worked less. And to me, I thought, well, that's so heartbreaking that these were really attainable things. And, you know, for whatever reason, like Clover, you know, they just couldn't get themselves to to say it or to do it. And so I really hope that maybe by reading this, people will reflect on their own lives and think, what are those small changes that I could make or what's in my power to to change now that maybe would mean fewer regrets on my deathbed? Were there any regrets you read in your researches or advice or confessions that just were out of this world. What was really interesting is how many people tended to get divorces on their deathbeds, that people, 
you know, they were determined to leave <laughs> life unattached to this individual, which is really sad that they kind of obviously had lived a lot of their life in an unhappy relationship, but this was their one final act. And that seems to happen more often than you would think. There's, you know, the confessions, you know, there are some sordid ones, I think, like murders and infidelity or things like that. Families. But yeah, families, there's just so many things go on. Like, And it's things that you would be like, no, that would never happen. That's just in the movies, but it's it's really real. To just <laughs> humans are a fascinating bunch. Very complex. Yeah. What was your favorite part in the book for yourself to read and write? What was the most enjoyable scene for you? I mean, I love old people, so I loved all of the scenes <laughs> with the the old people. I love spending time with the elderly. So those characters were really fun to write. And Grandpa was kind of an amalgamation of all the great aunts and uncles and grandparents and even my mom, like everybody in my life who kind of raised me and, and gave me all of this wisdom, whether it was kind of misguided or not. So it was really fun to kind of bring that all into a character. And then Claudia as well, because she was just such a fabulous old woman and, and imagining what her life was like and could have been like was really fun as well. Yeah, that was really sad. And Leo's so vibrant. They're all such, yeah, well-drawn characters. The final question really is, what's your favourite 90s movie? You can't make me name one. <laughs> I would have to think the ones that, like, I don't watch them compulsively like Clover, but there's a few I've seen a lot. Like Dirty Dancing, I think, was 80s, actually. Pretty Woman. Pretty Woman. Um, do You Love Practical Magic, which is in the book? Yeah, um, I do feel like ninety the nineties was the superior era of of rom-com. romantic comedies. I just feel like they were a little bit more, they're a bit more depth to them. Some of them don't hold up well, but but as a general rule, most <laughs> there's a few that don't hold up in this. Yeah, that was actually one really nice thing about the book. Like, although obviously Clover's heteronormative, like the, there was inclusivity in the book which is the world we're living in and which is really nice to see that coming into books with these themes. I really wanted to do it in a way that wasn't, look at this, you know, not everybody's straight. I really wanted it just to to present it as a normal part of her world, you know, all the characters that aren't straight, that is just part of her normal world in New York City because that does reflect New York City and, and everybody's social networks. So I think it is really important that, it doesn't have to be a plot point. Yeah. It can just be part of the environment. And I think that's because there's plenty of people who are, are writing great queer stories. And I think that's really important. And I think it's also important for writers who aren't queer to include that in their world because that sort of reflects the world that we live in. The whole kind of theme of the book is our time is precious. So I just really appreciate anybody who reads it and and considers it and I hope it does bring them a little bit of joy and makes them reflect on how they could make their life a little bit more beautiful. And finally, are Reuben and Julia, Julia Gillard and her dog? Oh, my gosh, you worked it out. (laughs) (laughs) Are there any more Easter eggs we need to be looking? (laughs) Oh, so many. Oh, thank you, Mickey. That was really great. We love your book and, and Mickey will be, I'm sure, on our radios and screens and everywhere. So thanks for coming and chatting, Nikki. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. The Collected Regrets of Clover 
is available via all reading stores and at our website, where you'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to e-news or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of the show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respects to elders past, present and emerging. Thank you.